0: Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'll read there, and then I'm going to move over to Job chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. I'll read to verse 26. These are very similar themes, another happy theme. Uh, I I, I want us to be very much aware uh, that wisdom literature is less concerned with our happiness and more concerned with a proper, realistic approach to understanding life. How it is. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and then I'll turn over to Job chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Again, this is Solomon writing, "...I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power." and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. All right, Job chapter three. Job has at this point lost his children, lost all of his possessions, And now his three friends come to him. His wife has already betrayed the intimacy that a wife should provide as a helpmeet. And she said, just curse God and die. So Job is very much alone. And this is what he says to his three friends. I'm going to start with verse 11. The whole chapter speaks of this theme. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light, There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures? who rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water, for the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing the preaching of it. Lord, grant us patience as we so often rush to figure out what you're saying so that our lives might be given greater ease, as though somehow by gaining wisdom we unlock the mysteries of life and we rise to a level where we are above the fray. Lord, no, you have called us instead to enter into the messiness of life, to even enter into it in the misery of others, but to understand it as it is. And even as Job's friends were poor counselors, help us not to be poor counselors, but to understand well what you have for us in your word, even this evening, we pray in your name. Amen. This evening we come to another very helpful, yet it seems despairing observation that Solomon has as he looks out over all that is under the sun and he remarks and applies the concept of hevel, vanity, mist, and vapor to all of life. What is life like here on earth under the sun? It is an unblushing Honest take on what we see. Now, it isn't what sells books, but it is real life. It isn't what we often think of as proper pietistic Christian optimism. How dare you not be happy? There are moments, even when we enter in the sanctuary of God, where there is much sorrow and much despair. Now, there is perspective, and that perspective is seen throughout the whole of this book. Solomon is building through a series of poems and writings, expressions of how we are to think in a world that is not only creaturely, but broken under the fall. Job experienced this. Job, a godly man, a man of great wealth, But a righteous man, to be sure, blessed by God because of his righteousness, was challenged in his perspective on the sovereignty of God when everything was taken away from him. And as his friends came to him and they endeavored to encourage and perhaps even later on teach him why they believed these things were happening, they thought very much like the health and wealth gospels folks of today, Job confessed from the very beginning, why did I even grow? Why was I allowed to age and marry and have children? Why could not my life have ended ever before it began? When you think about that, what sorts of emotions do you think were running through the heart of Job? Sorrow? Regret? perhaps even a bit of anger, impatience, frustration, great despair. He saw all that was precious taken from him, and all he could say was what? The easier path would have been to never have been. Now, that sounds, especially to modern Christian ears, very nihilistic. But it is, in fact, not just something that, many of us perhaps have said before, but something that is in fact a true reflection of the world under the weight of sin. How then are we to see death? How are we to understand it, to know its true heinous, na- heinous nature and existence, and yet not fear it, because we are a people who worship a God who though was once dead, has been raised again. Two points that I want to make this evening. The first... With eyes of faith, that is, we need to see death. With eyes of faith, and then second, living with this renewed vision of death. Living with a renewed vision of death. Let's look at the first point, with eyes of faith. Now, it seems that as we grow as children, oftentimes our transition from young to old results in a kind of relationship to death that begins with terror and fear and then sort of settles into what? Understanding, coming to grips with it. It's just part of it. I remember as a young child, my grandparents, frequently on the weekends going to funerals of friends. And now it's my parents. And then soon it will be me. And my children will watch me. And then my grandchildren, one generation, declares, whether they like to or not, we all have a bookend at the beginning and at the end. And we are all headed towards that same place. Solomon has remarked on this already in chapter 3. Whether you are man or beast, you all go into the ground, as it were. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We are of the earth, and we go back down into the earth. Solomon would have us understand that this is a true principle, and that as it relates to the things that we see under the sun, what life tells us, without eyes of faith, is that you're dirt, you're matter, you're animal. And so this sort of humanistic, hedonistic, atheistic approach to life says, then what? Eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow you may die. Now, Solomon has a somewhat similar exhortation, and that is to do what? Enjoy the simple things. Eat and drink, but with a different perspective. Not running from the truth, but embracing the truth. That The joy and aspiration that the Christian has is distinct from the one who does not confess Christ as Lord. The Christian joy is... Let us enjoy the things that God has given us in due season, in due time. Not as an escape from reality, but as part of reality. What I'm talking about is not a half or glass half empty versus a glass half full way of living. It's not one or the other, pure optimism, pure pessimism but looking at life the way it is and calling it good because there is a God who is in heaven who orchestrates all, all that happens. This is what we find in the first part of chapter 3. A time for everything, a season. This isn't about just the regular cycles. These, this, this first part of chapter 3 speaks of God's sovereign superintendence over everything. And so what Solomon is doing is he is helping us to come to grips with the reality that life is difficult. Life is hard. Life is samey. How many of you have gotten the same Christmas gift before? Because the person who gave it to you the first time forgot they gave it. That's what I mean. (laughs) Or if you've ever had a job, and you go to that job, And you do the same thing over and over and over again. And when you're young, that feels like death. But when you're old, it's the way you provide and it's the means of life. What we are looking for, what Solomon is endeavoring to implant into our hearts is a sober, real joy, a weighty joy that is not untethered from the way things are, but looks at the way things are and says, well, that's the way things are. Things according to God's revealed will. What is, or what good is joy if it is untethered from what is real? In fact, oftentimes this is what we find, especially in the young, a pursuit of pleasure that is detached from reality. I'm going to do this because it makes me happy. Consequences, well, you know the rest of the same. <laughs> I don't care about the consequences. What consequences? Spurgeon writes, The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Wisdom literature reminds us that Christian maturity and the ideal Christian life, the life that we should be endeavoring to lead and to live, is not one where there is the absence of suffering, but rather a proper biblical perspective upon suffering. And death is part of that. And not just death, but the little tendrils and death's associates. Look at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions. Would there be oppression without the fall? No. Would there be death? No. Would there be discomfort? Well, not a kind of discomfort that leads to death, right? There was work. I imagine we'd be getting calluses. And there is some element of discomfort. But what we're talking about is the kind of discomfort that is found in alienation from Christ Jesus. It is discomfort under oppression. And so you have two parties. Verse 1 still. On the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. Death is our great enemy. And death has many agents of misery, wicked power, scarcity of resources, those things that are true, felt by those who live in a world touched by sin. And so, if we are to see death with eyes of faith, we must come to see death as Scripture speaks of it. Now, we need to have a biblically nuanced view of death. Now, how do we do that? Well, we need to understand what Solomon is saying here about the place of death in the life of individuals. In order for a person to be wise and to think as the Lord would intend about our lives, we must see death as inevitable. It's coming. And at the end of that, or what goes beyond death, is what? Eternity. Eternity in heaven, eternity in hell. And the lives that we live here are reflected in the manner in which we will dwell and live eternally. If you die in Christ, you spend eternity in heaven. If you die apart from Christ, having rejected the offer of salvation, you go and spend eternity in eternal torment and misery. And so like so many things that seem unpleasant to us, Death is one of those things, and it is not just because it is an end to the thing that we love, maybe our lives, sometimes we may not, and Solomon will get to that, but it's that we are not in control of it. We cannot control it. It's coming. We are operating on a finite timeline in terms of our opportunity to labor under the sun for the furthering of the kingdom of Christ. Vanity does not mean waste. It means what? It's quick. It doesn't last very long. Young people ask the oldest in this congregation. Now, when you do that, don't go up to them and say, You seem like the oldest person in this room, so I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> but someone that's older than you and ask them, Does time speed up as you get older? And the answer to that question is, yes. You blink, and you're middle-aged. I can't imagine what happens when I blink again. I don't want to, (laughs) because it's coming. But it should not stare a Christian in the face, that is death, like it would another person. You will die. But our understanding of death as it relates to what the scriptures teach is nuanced in this way. Though death is our enemy, there are times where death appears a relief, and this is what Solomon is talking about. I thought, verse 2, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And you may say, what? And those people have never felt much suffering. Those people who do not understand how Solomon could say this have never come to a point in their life where they have really felt the pain of life in this world. I remember watching a video on YouTube about the oldest living woman. I believe she lived in Russia, and it was through a translator. This is a godly Christian woman, and her greatest wish is to die. She's 116 years old. Can you imagine? She says, I love the Lord, but every day it's just pain. I just hurt everywhere all the time, and I wish I could go to glory. Now the young go, but life is because you're on the other end of life and there's all of this potential. But for many, many who are not as fortunate as we, providentially, physically speaking, in terms of the liberty that we enjoy and the lack of fear of death and torment and oppression, death is often a relief. Whether it's the oppression of a disease that is wreaking havoc on our bodies or the oppression of those who not only wish to kill but to torture and to maim and to humiliate. And the reason why we can speak of it as a relief and that Solomon can is because he sees death with the eyes of faith and he understands that there is something beyond death that is greater than death itself. Death is not our master. Because Paul, as Paul says, the sting of death has been removed. Like a kind of domesticated beast who may have once been terrifying is now declawed, defanged, and certainly no longer a lasting threat. I'm not saying we can then be reckless or ought to be but that we do not have to be afraid of what lies beyond the veil, the curtain that is death. And for many, the sick, the old, the injured, there is release. It represents the perfection of our souls in glory, awaiting the resurrection of the body. It is therefore not something to be feared as a mighty tyrant but is that which can and does bring great sorrow, but still represents an end to fateful Christian labor. And so we don't worship it, we don't embrace it, but we are not afraid of it. Death is also misery. Death is not merely relief, or even in the best circumstances, like going in your sleep, or those who are surrounded by family as they sing the Psalms, Of scripture, and they send their beloved ones off to heaven, and that happens. Sometimes death comes violently, abruptly, to those who are too young, too vivacious, too dear, and it feels like an utter change, a direct left turn. Where did this come from? Perhaps it's a child born or not. A spouse. Death is a great misery because it reminds us of the weight and curse of sin. It's a strange relationship we have with death, isn't it? It's weird. It really is. Death is weird for the believer. I can't think of a more profound theological word than weird. Strange. Same thing. It's better than being all terror, all bad, because it is not a precipice, a, a, a sort of yawning chasm of darkness that we don't know what lies ahead. There are some who do, and they are to be most pitied. But we cannot speak of dead fortune if we do not believe that there is a life beyond death. Paul summarizes well when he speaks optimistically of death. To live is Christ. But to die is gain, or as I often say, is more Christ. Or, O death, where is thy sting? Christ has removed death's sting. What is even stranger is Solomon goes another step further and speaks not only of being more fortunate having been already dead, but never having been born. And we'll get there in a moment but for a little bit longer, death is for us a tutor, a teacher, for understanding life. If we are to see death with eyes of fate, we need to understand that we cannot flee, not fully, the oppressions, the tyranny of death and suffering that come having been born into this world. Parents, sometimes we try to protect our children, Right? Maybe you go to the funeral home, but you don't let them see the body. Let them see the body. It's time. (laughs) Let them understand. This is why pets are so helpful. How many pets have we lost? Many. And what we come to is an awareness that life is brief, and if you're a gerbil and you come to the Fowler house, it will have been better that you had never been born or a hamster, whatever other animal we leave outside to be preyed upon by birds of prey. Whatever it may be, we come to this hard conclusion. There are many threats and dangers. Death and its associates are cold, brutal, and seemingly impersonal. But they do not lie beyond the boundaries of God's sovereign control. You see, Solomon is speaking as one not who has lost hope, but who understands the sovereign orchestration of all things. Already he has said at the beginning of chapter 3, there is a time to be born and a time to die. And God is the author of both of those moments. God is in control of these things. And the sufferings of this earth sometimes are so great that it is neither irresponsible or unrighteous to say it would be better to be dead. Let me add this. There are no situations in this life in which death would not be an improvement for any of us who are in Christ Jesus. It would be difficult for those who are left behind. But for those who are already gone, do you think David is going, you know, I wish I had... Done X. I'm talking about King David. Or those saints who have gone before us. Do you think if the option were presented to spend another day on this earth or to spend eternity in sinless perfection, they would go, Well, okay, now I'll stay here. I'm good. I like where I am now. We must understand death with eyes of faith. There is great oppression. There is great tyranny. There is great sorrow. And so Solomon rightly says, with eyes wide open, it is better to be dead than to be alive. Now, let's move to the second point, living with a renewed vision of death. There are many who do not see death as a net gain. Death represents only an end. And they do everything in this life to flee from it, to run from it. In fact, we live among a people who are enslaved by fear and the tyranny of death. And whether it is the Red Scare, whether it is an environmentalist sort of just insanity where the world is out to get us, we are always inventing these cataclysms so that we might, in our own power, find a way to solve them. And in doing so, we prove, what? That we can stave off death. You cannot. You cannot. When Job and Solomon both confess that there are times where it is not only better to be dead than be alive, but never to have existed, they are expressing a proper grief Over the true weight of sin that we often feel. Solomon is not talking about suicide. He is not being a nihilist or a pessimist. He's being a realist. What is he responding to? The severity of oppression the severity of those miseries that are related to death that oftentimes make us feel as though it would have been better had we never been alive there are people in this county right now who think that way and they see that there is an there is no reason to continue to live This is happening. Now here is where the wisdom literature is worth its weight in gold for us. It's describing things as they are. And it's coming to us and it is telling us this. You will feel this way. Your neighbor will feel this way. And it is the way that you feel under a world where sin is wreaking havoc. And there is great evil, verse 3, that is being done under the sun. Now, this section expands, and it speaks about the way in which we endure such miseries is together. Now, we're not there yet. We will get there next week. But for now, I want us to see that as a church, as a body, as individuals, we will face such oppressions and torments and sorrows and despairs that we will confess in our hearts, even if we do not say it aloud, It would have been better had I never been born. Now, that does not mean you wish that your spouse was gone, that you never had children. You just know that the sorrow is so acute, you never wish you were put in the place to ever have felt that sorrow. It's that tough. And that the only relief that you can think of is to never have existed. Now, what do we do with that? Well, many Christians will say what? You just shouldn't feel that way. Was Job rebuked by God for that expression in chapter 3? No, he was not. I don't think Solomon should be rebuked. I think as Christians, that is not the point at all here in chapter 4. The point of chapter 4 is to drive us to a perspective that puts death in its proper place. To see that death is, in fact, a gain. And that there is a hope that goes, or lies, rather, that comes to us from a place that is not under the sun that we need to receive while we are under the sun. And so Christ comes to us in the midst of our sorrows and what does he do? What do we sing? Man of sorrows, right? Man of sorrows, what a name. And this hymn speaks of the sufferings of Christ. No one has suffered as Christ suffered. Christ even... Pray to the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Christ understood the miseries of this world because he took upon himself human flesh and though without sin, still suffered the temptations and the trials that we endure. And beyond all of that, he, solitarily, on the cross, while hanging there in his body, suffered all of the wrath of the Father for the sins of the elect, with no mediation whatsoever. He suffered it all. If there is any man who we might say would have been better had he never been born, it is the one who suffered for our sins. And so even in the midst of our great suffering, though Solomon had not seen him, Solomon speaks of that hope nonetheless. The hevel, the mist, the vapor. The reality of life under the sun goes so deep that if we seek to suffer these things apart, untethered from that joy that comes to us from Christ Jesus, we might also lose absolute hope. And so what we must do is we must see death through eyes of redemption. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are all being killed the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Death can't touch us. Because Christ has killed death. Death died on the day of Christ's resurrection. And there are many who have succumbed to the desperation of the weight of sin and misery. But there is a message of hope that comes to us even in those times of great affliction. So that though we may cry out, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Lord, This is awful. Bone cancer hurts. Right? The loss of a spouse is physically, not just emotionally and mentally painful. It manifests itself in physical groanings. All of this is terrible. But death is a temporary suffering that we will all face until the time of Christ's second coming. What Solomon is not doing here is succumbing to the tyranny of death. He is speaking as one who, having seen it, looks at it and in some fashion says, What you got? To see death with resurrection eyes, that Christ has destroyed death in his own death. And resurrection. And so, as we enter this new year, let us be very much aware of the preciousness of life and the glory that lies beyond all that we see and do, all that we put our hands to, and all the people that we meet. And we will meet some people that are really hurting. And the worst thing that you can possibly say is what? Something that will diminish the sorrow that they are feeling. Oh, that's not so bad. (laughs) Really? No. There is one thing that the friends of Job did well. They sat there for a week and they said nothing. It's when they opened their mouths that they (laughs) revealed their true bad theology. We will meet those who are truly hurting and we may even this year hurt ourselves. But there is a God who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth and because he sits there, we have hope and purpose a calling and a mission and sometimes that mission involves suffering and pain even most miserable moments but all of these things in due time will be swallowed up by Christ's resurrected glory this is our hope that we do not have to despair even the most even the most difficult of moments are redeemed by Christ. Let's pray.